Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Now as the human race, we disagree on a lot of things. Religion, war, which country is the strongest, does pineapple belong on pizza, it really does not. Um, But one thing we can all agree on is that we live in an imperfect and broken world. We have war, famine, greed, sickness and racism and we live in a world that is fractured from within and aching for wholeness. We have an image in our minds of how the world should be and then the reality of what it actually is. Um, I wonder if anyone here has ever seen the film Up. I remember sitting down to watch this cute film years ago where you know there's going to be a little old man, a talking dog and a bunch of balloons and you're in a minute, you're about a minute in and you're like, this is adorable. It's so beautifully animated. The soft, warm hues and endearing characters. And then, bam, classic Pixar move. And you're hit with heartbreak and you're sobbing while watching a children's movie in a cinema filled with five-year-olds. That may or may not have happened. <laughs> and when watching that film, you're faced with a harsh reality. But actually, those Pixar films are often acknowledging the brokenness and fractured elements of this world in a way that's actually accessible to to children, which is is quite something. And the Christian author Lisa Turkhurst describes it in this way, that we are living in between two gardens. We have the Garden of Eden that was perfect and we were perfectly formed in there and God saw it and said it was good. There was no sadness, no brokenness, no injustice, no depression, no death. But it was a paradise where, and it was a paradise where Adam and Eve walked in harmony alongside God. But we don't live there now. We're longing to get back to that place. And we know that God will one day restore Eden. But right now, our world doesn't look like the Garden of Eden. Our world right now aches for wholeness and harmony. Just look at the thousands of humanitarian and environmental charities that exist, the industry of counselling, therapy and self-help books. We are searching and reaching for wholeness. We ask ourselves questions like, why is the world the way it is? But the brokenness isn't just out there, it's um, in us too. Why are we the way we are? I'm sure lots of us can relate that on our best days we want to be better people, we want to love well, um, but on our worst days we make choices that harm others, we choose ourselves, we judge, we gossip, we offend. The theologian Rich Viodas says this, We exist in a world aching for wholeness, whether the fractures are related to politics, race, religion, public health or sexuality, to name a few of the polarising issues we feel daily. Our lives are not often marked by love, goodness, beauty and kindness, but by reactivity, impatience, judgmentalism, violence and the inability to hold space with one another. The world is broken, we are broken, but the Bible has hope. As I said earlier, the Bible ends with Eden restored. And in Revelation 21 verse 3 to 5 it says, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be there with them and be their God. 
He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Now, I realise this is quite a heavy topic to walk in on if it's your first week here, but we don't want to shy away from this. And this is the beginning of a new series that we're going to be doing where we'll be drawing from this book, Good and Beautiful and Kind, Becoming Whole in a Fractured World by Rich Viodas, who I quoted earlier. And this is our book of the term here at CCM, and we'd encourage you all to read it. I'm currently two thirds of the way through and I can vouch for it. We're going to be using it as a framework for this series, but we will still be teaching directly from the Bible, not just taking ideas from the book. So the first section of the book begins to look at the forces behind the fractures in our world. And this week we're going to be looking at sin, the internal fracture that we have all experienced. I want you to have a quick think. What associating words come to mind when you think of sin? You might think of law-breaking, of debt, wrongdoing, which are all accurate metaphors for how our sin is a barrier to our relationship with God. But what if we look at the root of our sinful actions and look at it from the perspective of failing to follow Jesus's greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Mark 12 verse 30. What's the opposite of this commandment to love? What if we look at sin through the lens of, at its core, sin is a failure to love? The North African bishop, um, St. Augustine, said this, Humanity is incurvatus in se, which means curved in on itself. Our focus is so often on ourselves. What do I need? Where will this take me? How will this benefit me? When I was a kid, I loved cake. I still do. And there was an instance where I ate the last brownie from our fridge without my mum's permission. And my mum knew it was either me or my brother that had eaten it as we'd been the only ones in the house during the brownie's disappearance. And um, when she challenged us about it together, my brother truthfully said he hadn't eaten it. And so I, realising she had no proof either way, also denied eating it. So we hit a kind of stalemate where my mum knew one of us was lying but had no way to determine who it was. And I remember sitting there a while thinking to myself, if I sit this out, I reckon I can get away with it or even convince my mum that my brother had actually eaten it. But my mum then threw in a bit of a wild card and said, I'm going to go and speak to Jesus in the dining room. And I immediately knew he's going to rat me out. (laughs) So I told her it was me and got my rightful punishment. Ironically, if I just confessed to eating the brownie in the first place, I think the discipline would have been pretty mild. But as my mum, bless her soul, would tell you, that's the whole story of my childhood. (laughs) And in that instance, and many instances throughout my childhood, the root of my sin was that I wasn't loving my brother well. At that moment, I was actively throwing him under the bus in the hope to save myself. I was curved in on myself as humanity is curved in on itself. But it's important to note that there's a difference between looking inward and being curved inward. When we look inward, we're looking for the sake of self-awareness, confession, and its ultimate gain is love. And then when God has done inward work on ourselves, this turns into an outward love that blesses others. But sin causes us to turn inward in an approach that makes us hide away, focusing on our own comforts, fears, desires and our personal perspective. 
It causes a barrier not just between us and God, but between us and those around us. Sin's destructive nature causes us to live self-seeking lives over and against others curving inward. It separates us from loving communion with God and others, and we see this play out throughout the Bible. And today I'm going to draw from these three main passages, essentially like our own origin story of sin. So first we're going to look at Genesis. Um, If you turn to Genesis, Genesis 3, we see the story of the fall of man. So God has finished creating this paradise, this perfect garden where man and woman have been made in his image. And they've been told they could eat from every tree in the garden, but not the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Chapter 2, verse 17. Then we see the serpent enter and question Eve about which fruits they can and can't eat and then twist the truth saying, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Chapter three, verse five. Then as we know, the story goes on, Adam and Eve both defy God and eat from the tree. They wanted more than just to be made in God's image. They wanted to be God. Instead of looking outward and upward for their moral compass, they looked within and gave in to a form of grasping. They gave in to spiritual greed. They saw the potential power that taking from the tree could give them. He saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, so she took of its fruit and ate. Verse 6. God had put a limit on this tree out of a loving boundary, and when they took from it out of greed, they uprooted love. This grasping caused them to turn inward. And Rich Viodas says here that whether the grasping comes in the form of taking land and calling it manifest destiny, whether it's corporations seizing land and exploiting the environment for economic self-interest and calling it innovation, or whether it comes in the form of sexual abuse or in the work workholism that fractures our families, our world is caught up in the sinful trap of aggressive grasping. And this grasping, this internal sin fracture, doesn't just have an effect on us as individuals, but a global impact as well. Um, I don't know how many of you have heard of the Ethical Trading Initiative, but they found a few years ago that 71% of companies believed that there was a likelihood of modern slavery within their supply chains. Globally, industries around us are grasping at more. They're fulfilling the desire for consumerism at the cost of people's lives and well-being. Fashion, farming, oil. This is a crisis where our broken world is operating on a broken system that looks inward and is forever grasping for more. One of my favourite authors, Arundhati Roy, says this line in one of her books. She says, Need was a warehouse that could accommodate a considerable amount of cruelty. This need, want, grasping for more, for power, has vast outward effects. And we see this play out right at the beginning of time here with Adam and Eve. Their sin caused them to turn inward through grasping. They pushed at a loving boundary that God had set and it left them hiding, ashamed. God's laws aren't the commandments of a dictator, but the commands of a loving father designed for peace and fullness of life. My challenge for us today is what loving boundaries that God has put in place have we been pushing at? So Adam and Eve's sin caused them to turn inward through grasping. We're next going to look at Cain and Abel. So if you want to turn to Genesis 4, um, we see we're with Cain and Abel and we see them turning inward through envy. 
So the story of sin started with a man and woman and then continued on as it was passed down to their offspring, Cain and Abel. And as we see in verse, chapter 4, verse 3 to 4, the two sons were very different. Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock of their fat portions. And it says in the following verses that God was more pleased with Abel's offering than Cain's. This led to Cain becoming jealous and angry, which then turned him inwards, leading him to the thinking that only one of them could be a success. Only one person could be pleasing to God, himself or his brother. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. In the following verse, we see Cain fails to rule over it and rises up against his brother and kills him. Jealousy is something we rarely admit to. I was once challenged by a friend on the phone when I was describing a situation in my life where she said, you must be careful not to become jealous, Beth. And uh, I, annoyed at the assumption, replied, I'm not jealous, I'm just frustrated. And um, we shortly ended the conversation, hung up the phone, and two minutes later, it sunk in. I was 100% jealous, but I just didn't want to admit it. Proverbs 30, uh, 14 verse 30 says, A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. The thing with envy is that it can often start small, like a little niggle, a hint at comparison. I want what they have. I want to be like them. Why do they get more attention, more likes, more friends, more appreciation than me? Why can't I draw, sing, write, play music, preach, pray, communicate with people like they can? And then as it grows, envy can become all-consuming and land in a zero-sum game, which has, has us under the spell of, for me to truly win, you need to unequivocally lose. And when we put ourselves in competition and comparison with someone, we are down the path of there can only be one winner. And either it leaves us with a very bad and low sense of self-worth or an envious and bitter sense of I need to be better than you. Both aren't good outcomes and the latter for Cain ended in him killing his brother. As Rich Viodas puts it, competition gives birth to conquest Success requires another's elimination. Comparison is something that is a big struggle for me and it's one of the reasons I've drawn away from social media recently. I've noticed it's a big stumbling block that steals my gratitude and leaves me feeling empty and I'm having to bring it before God time and time again and if I don't stop it in its tracks early it can turn ugly and bitter and like Proverbs says I can feel it rotting my bones. Envy turns us inward, prohibiting us from loving one another. And as the Lord said to Cain, sin is crouching at the door, its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Much like the verse in 1 Peter 5 verse 8, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. It's for this reason we must be aware of our internal fractures, aware of our sin patterns and failings, and we mustn't let them rule over us. The Lord has instructed us to love our neighbour. Who in our lives are we failing to love well out of the trap of competition or comparison? 
Then the third passage I want us to look at is Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel and how it shows the people turning inwards through exclusionism. In this passage, we see the progression of humanity. They're continuing to go their own way. And they come to a plain in the land of Shinar and they say, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. That's verse four. Now, God's concern here doesn't come from him being worried about them reaching heaven, about the tower getting too tall. And I almost feel like there's a slight element of humour in the way it's written here. And it says, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And you can almost imagine God swooping down from heaven with a magnifying glass on all fours, saying, I'm not seeing it. <laughs> oh, wait, there is. And um, the problem here, it's, yeah, it's not that he's fearful of them actually reaching heaven, it's that the people are scared about being scattered, which directly goes against God's commissioning in Genesis 1 for his people to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, verse 28. But rather than doing that, they prefer to stay put together and build their homogenous community. Collectively and geographically, they have turned inward, harvesting this exclusivity where they are all the same people and speak the same language. Living in fear of those who are different, they were creating this almost uniformity. But uniformity often leads to exclusivity. If you don't speak like us and look like us, then you're not welcome here. And while it may have been embodied in a tower here in the Old Testament, it's seeped today in our social media, our politics and our society. Back in 2016, when we were in the throes of the Brexit referendum, I was convinced that we were going to remain in the EU. All over my social media, it was filled with people who believed what I believed and agreed with my opinion on the matter. Then after the votes were counted and the outcome was revealed, I was so shocked how could it have happened everyone i knew was voting to remain um even the algorithm on the my facebook page had so adhered to my perception that it had me blind to the views and opinions and beliefs of those around me who disagreed with me and this scenario made me so aware of how easy it is to fall into a world um, a community or even a church where we only surround ourselves with people who are just like us and at its darkest, this takes its form in racism, sexism and classism. And these are deep-rooted fractures that are failures to love. At CCM, we want to be a church that is a welcoming and loving place for everyone. A community that reflects the diversity of its city. God's heart is for a multicultural kingdom and that is our heart here in Manchester. So... What's the solution? Sin isn't just something we do, but a power that curves us in on ourselves. So how do we uncurve ourselves? And to truly uncurve ourselves, we must be rooted in love. Often we can find this is an insurmountable task. We can't rescue ourselves. We can't save ourselves. It's not like a progress chart where we can tick off how we're doing, slowly progressing to a holy state. Because ultimately, the power isn't in us. It's in the cross. The cross is where our debt was paid, where our sin was defeated once and for all. Through Jesus' life, death and resurrection, sin no longer has the last word. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him 
we might become the righteousness of God. The sin that has fractured our world and our lives, the sin that causes greed, envy, jealousy and exclusionism, Jesus took on and defeated. It no longer has a power over our lives and no longer belongs in our lives. The cross causes us to stop curving inward, looking at our fractured selves, but rather to turn outward and look at what Jesus has done. And we've been sent a helper. The promised Holy Spirit is working in us, convicting us, not condemning us of our sin. John 16 verse 8 says, And when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. It brings it to the surface, not to bring us shame, but to bring repentance and renewal in God. We know that on the cross, Jesus defeated the sin of death and sin, and that the full victory will come into place when he fully renews the earth. So in the meantime, what do we do in this fractured world, in this in-between the two gardens? We confess and repent. We don't sit inwardly in our sin, isolating ourselves away, chewing over what we've done wrong. We practice confession in loving community. We are all constantly in need of grace, whether you became a Christian 20 years ago, 15 or yesterday, or if you're not a Christian today, we are all constantly in need of grace. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. But when I say confession, we don't want this to be a place of judging, but a place of being real with each other and finding someone to share with. And whether this is your first time or your a thousand and first time, this is coming to the cross and saying, I've messed up. Lord, forgive me and renew me. This is how we begin to, to move towards wholeness, not by covering up our sins and mistakes, but by in love, acknowledging them before God and one another. Romans 8 verse 1 to 2 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. 